Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. This is Missing the Point with Miles David, and I am your host. Thank you for tuning back in. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Welcome back to this mess that I call a podcast. And I don't know why. I always say this. I don't know why it feels like every time I come back and record an episode, it feels like so much time has passed when I just check my calendar and the last episode premiered a Monday ago, like only a Monday has passed. So whatever. That just means I'm doing what I should be doing and I'm happy doing it. Right? No. Okay. (laughs) Either way. Welcome back to the show, guys. If you're new here, I really appreciate you. If you're returning, then welcome on back. And we are on the other side of a year of Missing the Point. If you haven't listened to the two-part series of my podcast anniversary or our podcast anniversary, since this is a collaborative effort of you guys or me recording, you guys listening and us interacting and starting this whole community and building and growing and all of that fun stuff. So we're going to use the the phrase hour. (laughs) If you haven't listened to those episodes, do me a favor and go back and listen to them. The growth and the reach on those episodes are astounding me. Like we are almost to 6,000 downloads in total for the whole for the whole show, which is incredible for a show that's only been in the works for a year and some change, like a little bit of change. And <laughs> I could be a lot more consistent or there have been patches where I could be a lot more consistent. But either way, that's what that's not what we're here to talk about today. Actually, we're here to talk about tennis that is back up and rolling post U.S. Open because this is one thing that we all know. And if you have not picked this up yet from being a podcast listener or a missing the point pointer, I have to coin a, I have to coin a phrase for the listeners. I think I'm going to start calling you guys pointers. If you if you are a pointer, you <laughs> that sounds kind of lame. We're going to roll with it today, though. If you're a pointer, there's one thing that you should have noticed by now about the tennis tour is that it continues to roll year end, month in, day in, weekend. There's tournaments and players playing every day of the year, pretty much. That's what it seems like. It, it never stops. Even after the U.S. Open, which is the last Grand Slam of the year, here we are tuning up for Indian Wells. And before we tune up for Indian Wells, there were two tournaments in the United States that took place and a couple others on the other side of the world. But the main focus today is San Diego and Chicago. I was joined by Vonch, who is a great Twitter friend of mine. Vonch is a tennis writer for Cracked Rackets and Tennis View magazine, as well as a podcast co-host for Tennis and Bagels. Vonch, Vonch has a very extensive brain when it comes to tennis. He's very analytical and into numbers. I am the complete opposite. I like the stories and, you know, the I guess the mess, if you will. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put it like that. Vonch is just a great guest. It's my first time having him on the show. Here's to many more uh, collaborations between him and I and the Tennis and Bagels podcast. You guys should check Vonch out and his podcast, all of which will be in the podcast description. So you can check him out and follow what he's doing because he's doing amazing things. And... Also, don't forget to check out Missing the Point on all Instagram, not Instagram platforms, on all social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, socials, all of it, you name it, we're active. You can tell I'm all over the place with today's intro. Just make sure that you guys are interacting because I love it. And I'm always on the other side of my phone trying to see who's new to the family and who is enjoying the content. So be sure to be active just as much as I'm interacting with you guys. And what else do we have today while I'm rambling? Yeah, I should probably cut it off here. 
and get into the show. So enjoy this episode while you're driving to work, from work, on the way to the grocery store, doing your laundry, doing your dishes. Enjoy today's episode and be on the lookout for a next episode because we're doing two this week because there's a lot of tennis happening. As I mentioned, Indian Wells is right around the corner, not in its normal time slot. So I have a whole nother episode that's coming out this week. So you're going to get a lot of my voice this week. So enjoy it, guys. Another one for the highlight reel. Hey guys, hey guys, welcome back to the show. We have a new guest on the show. I've been telling um, myself this in my head that I'm getting better and better with the tennis savants that I have onto the podcast, and this one is no different. I have Vonch, who is very wise and creative with your tennis stats, your news and info, and you also work as a tennis writer and you're a fellow podcaster. So welcome to the show, Vonch. Thank you for the thank you for that intro, uh, Miles. It's great to be on here. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of what you do, and you know, keep keep up the great work. And yeah, I'm I'm I love just an hour of tennis talk in my day. So this should be I know, fun. right? It's it it feels like we're on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> talking about like what we normally would talk about as we scroll through our timelines. You know, that's what I that's the kind of feel I want when I do podcasts to kind of just feel like we were just saying, listening to somebody like at a round table discussion or like just hanging out with your friends, talking tennis. That's kind of usually how I want the vibe to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, the friendlier and easygoing, you know, the better I, I tend to find it is, you know, just especially because, our sport, especially because sometimes our sport can be a little stuffy. <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah just a little just a just little slow especially if you're just scrolling through your timeline and you know all kinds of polarizing opinions and you know it's nice to just have a kind of a voice call or a conversation once in a while and it just you know for, for sure like so, get two people that are on the same page i know right i know because I, I feel like usually when i come across your tweets we're on the same we're on the same page and even if I have a difference of opinion. I can read your tweets. And I'm being granted, this is like 140 characters. But I'm like, that makes sense. It's not like you're pulling stuff from like your back pocket of the places that don't make sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, usually I try, to, I try to provide some kind of context or some kind of, you know, I'm really big into numbers. So I like to kind of integrate numbers and stats um, into my analysis. And so that's usually how I try to you know, that's kind of my niche, if you can call it that, in tennis. And so I just try to use that on my timeline because I think it's it's reflective of who I am. So That's a good thing. I mean, I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I feel like having you on the show would be a would would be a nice balance because numbers aren't my strong points. I usually go for the stories. And luckily uh -huh. we have some good stories to talk about this week that I think are interesting, especially considering the fact that we are post us open we're talking about or we're going to be talking about some tournaments that actually are still based in the u.s which i think is a nice switch up because usually towards the end of the tennis season the tour goes all the way to asia but of course or asia and otherwise like eastern european and just it doesn't really come back to the united states after it leaves the u.s open but because of covid and um you know the pandemic things on the tours and the calendars are a little shifted so we're actually going to be talking about tournaments that just took place in san diego which 
we're going to circle back, talk about your experience in San Diego, because it's, it's really something I want to expound on because you were there, <laughs> which I think is always awesome to talk to a fan and a person who was on the grounds. And then we're also going to cover the women's tournament in Chicago. But before we do that, before we really hop on into the episode, I wanted to just let the listeners know or give the listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit more so you can mm-hmm. tell them about um, you already said your niche is numbers, but how is your connection to the sport? Like, do you play or are you a watcher? Or are you a mixture of both? Yeah, sure. I can go into that. So, um, you know, actually, my first ever experience um, of anything to do with tennis was really uh, back in 2007, 2008. You know, because my dad would just go and play recreationally with a couple of his friends. Um, you know, he didn't take any lessons or anything like that. It was just a way to kind of get exercise, get the blood flowing every, you know, Saturday, Sunday morning and just go for a hit, you know, and just have a good time with friends that we, we knew very well. And I, I would just hop on with my dad and just observe and watch the game and just kind of ask a lot of questions. I was a very <laughs> curious young kid. So I would just go and, you know, ask my dad, you know, how does this work? You know, why does it go from zero, zero to 15? Why, you know, why 15 to 30? Why 30? So I just got really in, into the game that way. And I, mm-hmm. and I realized, you know, actually, I could just take a ball and a racket and just hit against the wall. And, you know, I'd seen people do that before. And I was kind of like, this seems pretty fun. So I would just... I was just going on my street, going on, you know, just walking on the street one day with my brother. And we actually just saw a couple of rackets lying, you know, near a, uh, near a garbage can, a trash area somewhere. Oh, wow. And we were just like, oh, you know, finders keepers. <laughs> you know, mind, I was like seven or eight at that time. So I was just like, all right, whatever. I see a Wilson racket, you know. I'm like, we just. Oh, it was a Wilson. So it has a little quality to it. Shout out to Wilson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shout out because it was, you know, it was not like a professional racket, but it was definitely been used before. But it was, uh, you know, it was a racket that I had for a while, actually, when I was a kid. So I would just hit against the wall for hours and hours and hours. And I just cleared space, I remember. And I would just make a lot of noise. And my parents would just <laughs> yell at me. And I just keep going and going and going because I just loved it so much. Um, and then, you know, then came the 2008 Wimbledon final. And at this point, you know, I had no, no um, vested interest in the sport. Like I really just, uh, I didn't really still know, quite know how it works. I just loved hitting against the ball. Mm-hmm. But then I saw, you know, two players play, you know, what just so happened to be one of the greatest matches of all time. And uh, They've written you know, books was, about it and movies. Well, I don't know if they got right, a movie. Yeah. Well, have they got a movie? I believe there was a documentary uh, that John Wertheim was part of, if I'm not yes. mistaken, the yes, Strokes yes, of yes. Genius. Yep. So they, have, they did make a documentary, you know, in the 10-year anniversary of it in 2018. But, you know, at that time, I didn't quite know, you know, what I was witnessing <laughs> you know, as, a, as a seven-year-old. But definitely, I was like, wow, I, you know, I want to play the game like this. This is, you know, this is really beautiful and just attractive tennis to watch. And so, you know, the more and more, I, for, from about 2008 to 2011, is when I really started like picking it up, taking lessons and playing. It wasn't until about maybe 2011 that I started actually like following it religiously, kind of week by week. And I would say every year since 2011, my interest has only peaked and peaked and just increased because there's new outlets. I discovered podcasts, I discovered Twitter, like, you know, very recently. <laughs> but, you know, before that, there was Yahoo Sports, there was Tennis Channel. There was Wait, all you're, recent, ways, you're recent to Twitter? Like fairly recent, not like a, a OG 2009, 2010. <laughs> well, actually, if you go to my Twitter bio, you know, it says join 2015, but really I actually was just using it as a news source. So mm. I was just using it as, a, as using it as a way to kind of bookmark articles and tweets that I liked and anything I liked, I just retweeted. 
So about 35,000 of my tweets are essentially just retweets because I actually didn't know, oh my God, you could quote tweet this and you could provide your own analysis. How and cool is add that? your own opinion, which is what Twitter is all about. Yeah. So it wasn't until actually the pandemic that I really actually got into Twitter and, you know, I started following, you know, the good accounts and, or the ones that are verified that are, you know, you know, credited news sources and stuff like that. And then I actually started forming a group, which is, this is how we got to know not, each other. But. I did not know that. That is a really good gem. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, just the way that <laughs> I've like come across your profile, because my profile like is, well, the, the podcast profile is only a little over a year old. Would have right. never known that you were kind of like new to the game, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. You kind of, your, your analysis and like I said, everything before your, your wisdom and stuff, it comes mm-hmm. through from your tweets and, your analysis. I, I def, definitely, definitely uh, can't get it out. I definitely would have not known that for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, and then, you know, just to touch on the playing part a little bit, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I eventually started playing some competitive USTA tournaments, you know, that were held in, you know, the SoCal area, because I'm, I'm from San Diego. I basically lived here my whole life. And, uh, you know, I would just participate in the opens and, you know, weekend um, tournaments that they had. And it was a, it's a very competitive section in San Diego and SoCal, because, all of california it seems like (laughs) it seems like you know southern california especially is where they and florida is the two main you know sections in the united states where all the best juniors really come and you know that's where the academies are that's where the high performance training is all at and so i would i would attend those clinics i you know just had to learn to suffer for hours and hours and hours and to get into the right mindset of tournaments and match play and you know if you can see right here I, i don't think our listeners can actually see this when it comes out but there's all these trophies right here. This is all from my junior playing days. Oh wow! Uh, so from tennis. You don't just talk about it. You are you are about it. I, that's that's really cool. You definitely have 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 one up my weekend warriorness. And here I am talking about. <laughs> I'm I'm good at talking about tennis, and you're good at talking about it and playing it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I would say you know I I played competitively for about three or four years, and you know I you know I had some good success in about under twelves, under fourteens, under sixteens. You know. But then, you know, school started getting busy and I was obviously, you know, my parents and me, we were all about, you know, focus on academics first, you know, try to get into a good university. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if tennis helps you, you know, with that, you know, then we're all for it. But, you know, in terms of just week in and week out grind, it just got too much at, at a certain point. And I actually had some injuries as well. Like I tore my, uh, I didn't tear it, but I had like a severe knee tendonitis. Mm. So I had to stop and I had to stop for a while. And you know, I just, I, I just wasn't in that same competitive mode after about three or four years of just playing tournaments on end weekend after weekend. And so, you know, that's where I really got into more of my writing bit. Okay. Uh, because that's where I uh, reached out to a magazine and I, and I realized that, you know, actually I love watching the game and I love playing it and having a perspective of both can allow me to, you know, put it to good use in an outlet somewhere and just, you know, watch majors and maybe just, you know, write something that would be interesting. And so I reached out to a couple of people and actually Tennis View Magazine uh, responded back and they said they were looking for junior writers. So I used that kind of as a gig for about two or three years. Oh, wow. To just pick the best matches in a major, because as mm-hmm. you know, I mean, two-week majors, there's... A lot of matches. Specifies <laughs> at tennis, especially. <laughs> I was focusing on the men's side and I just mm-hmm. would pick like, you know, maybe the top five best matches and just do a deep dive analysis on all of them. And, you know, I found that it worked better with my schedule that way, that I could commit to sort of, okay, these are the five matches I'm covering. I'll just focus on these because they just happen to be the best, highest quality matches of the tournament when it's all said and done. 
And, you know, from then on, I just, I just kept going more into the tennis media side. I started looking at a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of other content that was out there. And then eventually Twitter came along for me, you know, last year. And we can try to kind of create a platform and get it going so that when tennis starts, you know, then we can start really covering it again. By that, I mean the hiatus and which eventually. It's, uh, it's definitely started for sure. What was the, what was the name yeah. of the podcast again? Just so listeners know exactly where to find your awesome thoughts, because you've definitely dropped some gems already and we're not even talking about the actual tennis. <laughs> <laughs> no. So it's thanks. So it's the tennis and bagels podcast actually. Um, yeah, you can find it on Anchor and it's on Spotify and Apple and all the podcast platforms. But actually, so it used to be Audrey so, and me. <laughs> <laughs> Always good, yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, it was me and Andre for a while, for about two or three months. And then we thought, you know, a podcast with three people sounds good. So let's bring in another guest. And so we've had on Owen Lewis. Um, his handle is at Tennis Nation. And he also yep. provides some really good insight. And, you know, we tend to align on a lot of the same things. So. You know, he's now a third member of our team. He's been a third member of our team since November of last year. So now it's just the three of us. We try to rock and roll every week and we try to do as much as we can with our busy schedules. And just, you know, if we can bring on a guest, we've had the honor to bring on Steve Flink, you know, four or five times, you know, especially after all the major tournaments. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of just helps us recap and, you know, just cover all the important bits that we can. Um, and we try to be as objective and neutral as possible. Steve Flink is a Hall of Famer, if I'm correct. So that's yeah. like, that's no scrub name for sure. That's not <laughs> at all. Like, that's a, that's a really good accomplishment for sure. Yeah, I mean, we were we were actually surprised that he he was willing to agree to, to it the first time. I thought, okay, this is kind of a shot in the dark. You know, we're not too big yet, but let's just try it and let's see what happens. And he agreed. And, you know, eventually that kind of became a, it kind of became a thing that after every major, we're going to do it as a post-major analysis. And so it worked out well that way. And we've had on Peter Bodo, we've had on, um, you know, Gil Gross from Monday Match Analysis. We've had on the guys Craig, at Crack no Records. No Craig Riley yet? What's that? No Craig Riley yet to talk about the uh, man- mandatory vaccinations for Australian Open? <laughs> oh, not, not yet, but you just gave me an idea for a good guess. So <laughs> thanks for that, man. <laughs> if you ever have to just, just give me a ding and be like, oh, Miles put that seed in there for me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about some tournaments that just took place this week um because that was a great intro and i definitely want to dive deep into what you saw in san diego this week but before we talk about san diego let's kind of touch on the two tournaments that didn't really get all the pomp and circumstance this week but were good competition nonetheless the atp 250 tournament in sofia won by yannick center the italian and then also the wta 250 tournament in kazakhstan won by allison van udfank um i know you were in san diego so we talked about a little bit before this and you didn't get a chance to watch all of these matches but is there anything that comes to mind from saying yannick center or allison van udfank that first comes to mind yeah so i mean for yannick center this was a big win because He's, uh, you know, he's now in the top 10 in the race to Turin. And he's lumped in there with, uh, you know, Hercatch and Rude. And it's, it's held in Turin. So it would be really big for the tournament to have two Italians on their debut playing the ATP finals for the first time. And, you know, I didn't get a whole lot of chance to watch his matches in depth. But definitely uh, what impressed me most is that he didn't drop a set. But in a lot of those matches... You know, if you look at the score lines and you look at, they were hard fought wins, you know, when he was. He could have dropped some for sure. He could have. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely saw he was down 2 5 in the second set against Krajanovic in the semifinals. 
He was also down, I believe, against Drasimov. Drasimov served for the second set. I, I want to say that was the round of 16. And he got it to a tiebreak. Yeah, he got it to a tiebreak yeah. and closed it out. And then against James Duckworth, who's actually been in really good form, and he made a final last week. I think, does Duckworth have a win over him this season? Cause he I does, think he does, yeah. At, in Atlanta Open, right? Is, was it there? Um, no, I think it was actually in Canada. In Canada, okay, okay. Canada, I, I, I do remember a, a Australian having a, a strange upset over center before the U.S. Open. I was off a couple of weeks. <laughs> right, yeah. I think it was the week right after he had won the Washington D.C. title. Gotcha. It was, a, it was a very quick turnaround for him. Mm-hmm. And you know, Duckworth was playing well that week, and he knocked out. I guess he knocked out Taylor Fritz as well, and he beat Sinner. So that was uh, that was a good win to kind of get revenge on that, and then just establish himself against Monfils in the final because. If you remember at the U.S. Open, they had a you know pretty epic five setter, where Sinner was in full control of that match. He was two sets to love up, and mm-hmm. you know he was disappointed that he kind of let Monfils back into it. Especially if you let Monfils back into it with the U.S. Open crowd and you yep. know him feeling a lot better. Um, and you know he closed him out in five sets, but I thought that took a little bit uh, of energy. It and, took a little wind out of his sails for sure. Which wind out of his sails, which you know impacted the way he played the fourth round of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open. But I, I do think I do think that like kind of what you said earlier about just like the 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 long slog of a of a season whether you're playing like under 12s under 13s this is Yannick Center right. who just turned 20 I believe this is his this is his first time on the pro tour defending his title successfully he won right. in Sofia Bulgaria in 2020 Correct. the past 12 months for him even even going back for that have been like very much so incremental success um, exactly. And he's he's definitely on the scene now as somebody he hasn't really uh, broken all the way through in the majors, but almost at every single tournament he enters now, there's going to be a, a likelihood that he can go deep almost at every single tournament, you know? Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on because especially his last, you know, you look at his 11 months of the season, you know, it's pretty solid, like 37 victories on the year, you know, 17 losses. I'm sure he had a little bit of a bad stretch, I guess, after the French Open. You know, mm-hmm. during the grass court season, but grass is so new for him, and he's, you know, he's done well to defend, you know, to defend his title. You know that, you know, without dropping a set, I guess that's, you know, that's a pretty, pretty good achievement. And you know, his I've seen improvements in his game as well. You know, which aren't the serve, especially for sure. Especially because, um, you know, I remember he used to have a platform stance on the serve. Yep, and that's where you have both your feet together, and you, you know, you kind of just explode into the serve. But now he has more of a measured kind of a uh, a more consistent. I believe he. I, I don't know if I read this article in its entirety. I should have, but I. I think like the the catch line was that he was a little bit inspired by Roger Federer's serve. Oh, is that right? It was. I, I think I've heard two players. It, it was. I'm pretty sure Casper Rude, who we'll talk about later, definitely got some inspiration from Roger Federer's serve, as well as Yannick Sinner. I'm not. A, I, I, I'm, I might have to fact check that, but I, mean, I definitely can see the mechanics. Serve. I can see the mechanics changing. He does strike me as the kind of guy who is taking a more long-term approach. You know, he's not so, you know, obviously he wants to win titles like all the, mm-hmm. all the young players do, but I think he's more about incremental improvement and just, you know, seeing how well you can improve so that in two or three years time, you know, he can be ready and competing for the latter stages of major tournaments. Cause the window is going to be open for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. he may bust through it and make his own window of opportunity, but the window of opportunity for new players to come along and kind of become household names is 
it's it's coming. It's 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 evident that it's coming, especially with Roger, Rafa, and Novak. All they're not all necessarily old, but they've been on yeah. they've been professionals for 10, 15, 20 years. So eventually, the changing of the guard, although that phrase in tennis gets like <laughs> run completely through the mud, it's bound to happen. And Yannick Center seems like he's yeah. going to be a good one to count on leading the charge. So switching gears just a little bit, going to the Kazakhstan tournament. This isn't a name that, honestly, I would have put in the same sentence as five-time titleists on the tour. But that's exactly what Alison Van Udvank is. From Belgium, I have a soft spot for gingers. I have no idea why. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> but I do. I have a soft spot for gingers. And she won her fifth championship of her career. And actually, what's a really interesting uh, stat, I don't know if you, if you caught this, Four of her five titles have all come in indoor tournaments. You don't really see indoor tournament specialists these days because there's just not that many. And the surfaces have all kind of home. There's an H word I'm trying to pull for Homogenized? You. Yes, homogenized. Thank you. <laughs> so it's nice to kind of see that she may be becoming an indoor specialist. At least if you were to look at her results on paper, that's what it would look like. So she brought home her fifth championship in Nurse Sultan in Kazakhstan. And it's kind of been a rocky season for her. I know she dropped down at one point and played an ITF tournament on grass, I do believe. I think mm-hmm. something something like that sounds familiar if I tap into my brain, but was definitely yeah. not something I saw coming. Even as number two seed, she just hasn't had a really positive season. But to kind of see her fight through the challenges that none other than Yulia Putinseva can can present and the home crowd because Putinseva is a, a, a Kazakh as well. She fought through that, kind of stayed resilient, and she lit the title at the end of the week. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I mean... Uh... You know, for her, it's it was a it was a great victory because I I definitely you know I didn't see a whole lot of that event, but I definitely thought Putin Seva would be a would be a favorite, especially like you mentioned with the home crowd, and she's already won a title this year, and she's really somebody who who wins a lot of titles at the two fifty level or at least makes finals, and so that that's definitely one where I kind of feel like it might have gotten away from her a little bit, especially in that third set. I if I remember correctly, she was up a break. She was up a break and she won the first set in like 25 minutes. So momentum right. was all hers uh, for the for Putin Seva. But she, I think she only has two titles to her name. So she does, yeah. She has two titles and she also has, I want to say, two quarterfinals and majors to her name. So she's successful in her own right. But yeah. something about Van Udvank, when I was watching some highlights of the match, super throwback, super soft hands at the net, yeah. just isn't isn't really isn't really um, confound to one part of the court. Whereas we know with um, Yulia, she loves right. to throw in a drop shot and it can kind of become a little... Very predictable. Right? Predictable, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Udvang strikes me as the kind of player that just has really good instincts mm-hmm. and has good feel at the net and just can kind of... I can see why she's very good indoors because there's not a whole lot of... There's a lot of first strike tennis to her game and a lot of finesse. And I can see that working well on grass and on faster kind of indoor courts um, like this one was. And for Putin Seva, I feel like her kind of game is more because she doesn't get a whole lot out of her serve. I mean, it's, you know, it's not the, the strongest part of the game. Starter. <laughs> Pretty much, right? And so, you know, so even when I said she's up a break, it is kind of like, well, does yeah. that break really mean that much? <laughs> no, but, 
but I do, I, I, I do um, think her game works better on clay um, and it works better on when she has a lot more time because she has a lot of options. Agreed. And sometimes I feel like her head is just muddled because she's just not sure what shot to hit at the right time. Or she's just frustrated. Uh, frustrate. I just combined two words, frustrated <laughs> and feisty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, feisty is definitely a good way to describe her. And there's a lot of compilation videos on YouTube you can find. For <laughs> sure. If, you, if you're into racket smashes and back and forth with the umpire, Putin Saver is your girl. She's, de- she's definitely yeah. your girl. Um, so I think I think we have given Sophia and uh, Kazakhstan Nur Sultan, Allison Van Udvank, and Yannick Sinners enough love. Shout out to them for raising trophies, something that's always good on both tours. So let's kind of segue segue into San Diego. That was a good um, one. <laughs> yeah, just one, one more thing before we do that. It, it's really nice yeah. to see Monfils playing really great again, right? Um, yeah, for sure. I definitely don't want to skip over him. Yeah. You know, because he had a he's had a really rough time. You know, uh, since really since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was one time where I was looking and he had lost three of his last seventeen matches. It was just crazy because it's a combination of, you know, the pandemic injuries and playing without a crowd, which I think he just really has been very open about. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't so long ago that he was in tears at a press conference in the first round of the Australian Open, and you know, you never want to see that because I think he's great for the game. I think he's, you know. A, there's some people out there who definitely think he's could have gotten a lot more out of his career than he has so far, but he's probably no, one of them, I guess. You, you, he, I think if you'd asked him, he he probably would have squeezed maybe a Masters 1000 title out of his right. career. But he, he does have a really cool stat that I saw on Twitter the other day. Like he's right after Rafa as far as making finals, making finals. consecutively yeah. and on tour yeah. from 2005. Seventeen years in a row, he's at least made a final. So that's, you know, that's consistency in its own right. And he's made mm-hmm. a lot of finals. I, I think he's won ten titles and made he's ten. Yeah, ten, 10 and twenty-two. 22. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's the set I saw. So, you know, I mean, and he does well in France, and he does well in the indoor events. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, when he when he's able to get his game going, I mean, it's electric. It is fun to watch, and it's explosive, and he can do a lot of different things and he kind of goes in in and out with his energy but when he is dialed in and focused it's it's an absolute treat to watch him and so it's just nice to see him you know producing wins week after week and just just kind of squeezing whatever's left out of his career because you know it's just it's it's Agreed. a nice good story for tennis Agreed, and he's he's still him. he's still making highlight reels that's something he'll continue yeah. to make into his last match for sure yeah. <laughs> Never get tired of seeing the dances and the you know the jumping smashes, or and, falling over the falling over the net trying to reach for a drop shot. <laughs> all, you really never know what you 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 know what you're going to get some entertainment, but you don't know how exactly you're going to get it when it comes to Gal Morphe's for sure, for okay. sure. Yeah. So when it comes to entertainment, how would you say or how, where would you rank the San Diego tournament from entertainment from your perspective, being that you were there? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I was covering this event at home. Um, you know, I was, I was honored to have a virtual uh, credential. So I got to kind of observe and see what this is like on, on TV, because I, you know, another, you know, backstory is that I actually played a lot at the Barnes Tennis Center where this event was held. So I've actually, it was really cool because I, here I am at the event in San Diego on Saturday, yesterday, um, being like, wow, I actually played on these courts and I played like semis and finals of like big matches at that time, you know, in my career if you want to call it that my junior Mm -hmm. career and to see how they've 
really transformed that stadium and they've transformed and they've had, you know, this tournament really took advantage of the fact that, you know, the Asian swing, a lot of it is canceled again due to COVID. Mm-hmm. And so there's opening uh, for new events this week. And we saw in, in Chicago and San Diego as well. Um, you know, these are just kind of stops on the tour for the players before they get to Indian Wells. And I must say the tournament organizers and the tournament staff, they did an incredible job of putting this all together at the last minute. They had just five weeks to do it. Um, but Which just is going insane. There, like that's so, that's so crazy because you necessarily, if you wouldn't have known that fact and watched the tournament yeah. from beginning to end, that's not something you would have been like, oh, I mean, I can kind of see the holes in the tournament. And that's just from a person that watched all of it via broadcasted on television, you know? I would have never right. guessed that. Yeah, I mean, so they so they done a they did a nice job logistically as well because they only had two match courts, uh, really for the whole event because it, you know it's a small f- field. I mean, it's a world class field where it, it was really really strong for a two fifty. I mean, this was the second most second most uh, strong in terms of rankings um, of the season as a two fifty uh, behind Doha, which had Roger Federer and Dominic Team and you know other top ten players playing. So I guess. You know, for appliance, and they had, and and in San Diego, we were fortunate that we got Andy Murray as a wild card. We got Kane Nishikori, who unfortunately pulled out due to injury. But nonetheless, the tournament was pretty stacked, and it was it was just really great to see all the players, you know, show up there and just kind of embrace San Diego, because San Diego is really a, a really cool destination for tennis. And obviously, I'm biased because I live there. But <laughs> <laughs> but San Diego seems like they embraced the players as well. I, I wanted to kind of briefly, like, they seem really excited to have the opportunity to watch tennis again. Because I know you mentioned 2007 earlier on, like, when we're doing our intro. And that was a great year for tennis for me because that was also one of the first years or one of the first seasons I watched from very beginning to the end. And I remember... Sharapova lifted the title at the San Diego tournament in 2007. And then from there, the women's tournament got spotty as far as how many years it would hold it. And then the men's tournament never really kind of came to fruition. So I guess my question is, how is it, how important is it, do you think, that we keep this tournament on the schedule and maybe create more tournaments in California slash the United States? Because just watching the crowd interaction, literally hearing how much they would amp players whether they were down or up or it didn't really matter it just made me feel like there is a buzz and there is a desire for more tennis in in the states especially in california but the tournament schedules don't really reflect that especially on the pro level you know yeah i I mean there's a lot of junior events and there's a lot of other smaller you know kind of I, I guess like nationals, you know, like girls 18s and 16s, mm-hmm. we see a lot of that, but nothing at the ATP or WTA level in the last 20 years. And for me, that was always a, you know, a big, a big thing is like we should have an event in San Diego and in California for that matter, because I think a lot of our best athletes and a lot from America and a lot of our, a lot of, there's a huge interest in tennis, you know, mm-hmm. here in Southern California and San Diego in general. And, you know, just to see the crowd and just to see the interactions and the kind of numbers this tournament had for its first debut, you know, on the tour. In the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> in, the middle, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, in the fall, after the U.S. Open. Right. When most people are, you know, it gets this quieter they're part of the season, out. especially yeah. for casual fans, because, mm-hmm. you know, you got, you, they're competing with NFL, they're competing with other uh, sports in the U.S. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that school is back on. And so, 
just to see the numbers that that on a qualifying day, where um, you know a world number nine hundred three, who is a SD uh, student, is playing the world number seventy six and causes this huge upset. You know, day one of qualifying, where over two thousand people came. You know, the turnout was two thousand for the first qualifying weekend. When I went yesterday, I mean, it was sold. Tickets were sold out Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, and, and this is you know a pretty big stadium. You know, mm-hmm. for two fifty, and I'd say it's pretty diverse and international in terms of the crowd as well. You could see flags. I don't know if you could see that on the broadcast, but there were flags all over from different countries, literally like all Bulgaria, over Bulgaria. Yeah, I saw that one. Like a lot. Britain, Italy, mm-hmm. and just. You could tell the fans are extremely knowledgeable and they're really invested in the sport on a year-round basis. Mm-hmm. I think that's you know I think that's key for a tournament location, in my opinion, just to have just so it piques the interest of the casual fans as well as the diehard fans like us. So I think that's a big, uh, big asset that San Diego has going for itself, and the fact that you know Rod Laver lives here, James Blake lives here, Billie Jean King is. From oh, here. you just you just like covered a huge thought bubble in my head because I was so confused as to why Rod Laver was at the trophy ceremony. Like not that he, I mean, obviously he's a, he's huge influential figure in tennis, but right. it didn't, I didn't get the correlation as to why he was there for San Diego, no, yeah, but now has, it makes he sense. He has a house here. <laughs> he has a house here and he, he spends a good deal of time in the, in the States, uh, in California. So, you know, for him and, and Billie Jean King was the honorary chairman of this event. So, you know, talk about like, big names and so mm-hmm. and and james blake came as a um a charity they played like a charity doubles match with steve nash and james blake i did so, see that i saw that on somebody's instagram stories wow, san diego had it going on like just from really like did. seeing people eating in the stands it just felt normal you know it felt it like it, it felt as close to normal and i I kind of wish they would like reflect back on this tournament and and slide it maybe somewhere into the pre-US Open warm-up, or we can keep it where it is and keep the greatness flowing like it like it did this week for sure. Um yeah. I don't know. Would you would you want to see it like put into the US Open series or do you like where it is on the on the on the calendar this so week? So I, I mean I don't see it being in October um mm. in future years. Mm-hmm. Just because I think eventually the Asian swing will come back just because mm. like a lot of the money and a lot of the um, events have been long standing there and they just can't afford to, you know, let that go another year. And I just think that it's a great stop on the way to Indian Wells. So that has me thinking that, you know, post Australian Open, sort of early March, uh, late February, where you see events in Delray Beach, New York. I mean, this is normal pre-COVID calendar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, we had an Indian Wells Challenger in 2020, just before Indian Wells got canceled. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this would be a good destination post-Australian Open, late February, early spring, just on during, the way to Indian During Wells, that, um, or like right before, or maybe during, so, so players have options, kind of, during that Middle oh, Eastern right. swing. Right, yeah, as well. And then also they're thinking um, now, obviously, with a new business plan that the ATP has come up with, um, I was reading with on the sports business journal um, that starting in 2023, I believe the Masters 1000s are going to be expanded. So you'll have, you know, two week Masters 1000 events like Indian Wells in Miami. And I'm kind of wondering if, because the 250s are going to be available for those who, you know, lose early at the early mm. rounds of the Masters events. the second week of the Masters events, kind of, sort of. Right. But I just hope that doesn't happen with, with San Diego, just from a personal perspective. Gotcha, because you want um, you want the the nicer names. Because I, I I do think it it deserves a its own unique place in the calendar as, as a week, 
um, especially also because this 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 year was so successful. I mean, they mm-hmm. hit it out of the park in terms of revenue and in terms of what they were hoping to make. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure they made a net profit, mm-hmm. and that's huge for a 250 because a lot of 250s, um, you know, don't stay on the calendar very long or they're just a little bit financially hurt. Mm-hmm. So that's and have been because of the pandemic. So this have was, been because of the pandemic. This, it seemed yeah. like a really nice win for San Diego in general, which was just nice to kind of see and come through television. I wish I would have been. I actually have been to San Diego before. I was there last August. I played tennis at La Jolla. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've I've been there a lot. It's actually pretty I was horrible. (laughs) Like, I mean, it wasn't any, it wasn't, I didn't play for any kind of competition, but I just needed, maybe this was ill-timed, now that I think about it in hindsight, I just needed a a, a break. And me and my friend Brian were supposed to go to Indian Wells um, for the 2020 version or 2020 uh, establishment of that tournament. I don't know why I'm scratching for words here, but... I, we like I held on to my ticket and I held on to like my funds out allocated for that and I was like let's go to San Diego and we had a great time and I, I definitely can't wait to go back something about the energy there is very refreshing and it came through in the tennis as well especially mm-hmm. if you are Casper Rude and or Cam Nori I think you would I leave do. San Diego feeling maybe Cam Nori, I mean, excuse me, maybe Casper Rude more than Cam Nori is is yeah. leaving San Diego a little bit refreshed because Casper Rude was a champion and Cam Nori was the finalist. And were you at any of their matches? I was actually. So I observed very closely the semifinals okay. and the final, and I watched the final today as well. And, you know, I watched a lot of the tennis throughout the week, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, on the broadcast. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It was such a great tournament, even if the final was a little bit of a dud, if we're being honest. Mm, yeah, six, um, six love six two. Yeah. Uh, you know, sorry, Cam Nori. It happens. It happens. Yeah, it, it you know it happens, and he had a great week, and he should be incredibly proud of the season that he's had. Um, you know, being top fifteen in the race, and he's really maximizing his career and getting the most out of his uh, out of his potential. And I think um, you know he'll be a big factor in two fifties and five hundreds for another couple of years at least. And he's definitely shown that he can play on all surfaces. Um, you know, did well so. in grass and, you know, made the finals of Queens. He's also made a couple of finals on clay. And I think the opportunity that he got in the majors as well to play Rafa in the third round of the Australian Open and then third round of the French Open. And then to have the experience of playing Roger Federer in the third round of Wimbledon in the mm-hmm. center crowd where he had the home crowd as well. In his favor, yeah. Um, you know, I think that's huge. And he, he you know performed acquitted himself very well in all three of those matches and i think that definitely gives him a boost and just the consistency that he's had all year and i'll tell you a quick story actually so i was um sitting next to someone during the nori and rublev match in the semifinals Mm -hmm. and he was always chanting you know go cam go nori you got this stay positive and you know all these things it was kind of like i'm I'm kind of thinking like is he affiliated with cam in any way or is this (laughs) just a regular fan because and i kept wondering this the whole time because just the way he was looking at him, and I could see that you know he was kind of giving him, uh, he wasn't coaching him or anything or giving him any direct tips or you know, it, it, tactical advice or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it was just a lot of positive encouragement and mm-hmm. feedback that Cam was getting. And so I was just thinking, man, is this guy like his psychologist, his coach? Like, what is, who is this guy? I know, <laughs> and this whole time, you know, I don't want to interrupt because he's in such a big zone and he's fully invested in Cam Nori and he you know, really, really wants Cam Nori to, you know, focus on every single point. And so I'm, I'm thinking they're going like, 
who is this guy? Let me just try to figure this out. Who is he? <laughs> and finally, at the end of the match, I mustered the courage to be like, so are you um, affiliated with Cam Nori in any way? Like, are you his coach or anything? And he just started laughing. He's like, no. But, you know, I, I do. I have worked with him in the past. And I help athletes with their breathing and their physiology and their mental strength. And so he started talking about how, um, how Cameron has improved so much as a player because he's paid attention to, he's, he's had more of a holistic approach to life. He mm. feels very um, calm out there on the court in big moments because he's practiced good breathing techniques. He's, he's um, you know, just improved his physiology as a tennis player. And he started explaining to me what that meant about the mind and the body working and how to control your emotions and how to, you know, make sure that your intensity and your focus level doesn't dip with external uh, distractions around you, whether it be the crowd or whether it be the pressure of closing out a tight match or just the occasion or just, you know, how well the opponent is playing and just being able to block all of that out and have a peripheral tunnel vision in that moment. And it was huge. And you could see his body language and his intensity just raise, um, you know, as the match progressed. And you could see the exact opposite was happening with Rublev. I was just about to say, like, that matchup, because I watched it from beginning to end on on television, that is an embodiment of what Cam Norrie has been working on. Because if you would have turned the television on and only watched the first set, you would have assumed that Cam Norrie would have just got blown out because Rublev was playing out of... Rublev was doing what Rublev does normally at 500s (laughs) or sometimes 1,000s. Just just pelting the ball, like dictating all the points and Rublev wasn't serving that great. I mean, not Rublev. Cam Norrie wasn't serving that great, but he kind of just does what he does, which is stick in. He He makes a... He, he does a good job of representing from the lefties with the with the with the with the backhand that's really flat and the the forehand that gives some kind of shape. The way he anticipates pace and redirects his game it. is deceptive because you feel like you know you're, sure. that's a good point because you're, you're you know if you're just watch that match and you're thinking and on paper like Rublev is you know Rublev's got the edge because he he just hits a lot bigger. He's got mm-hmm. he's you know the match is basically played on his terms. He serves much bigger. He hits his forehand a lot faster and linearly and he's you know he can just rush cam and just there's there's a level that rublev can reach which you know cam just just quite can't get to you know and so yeah. just, na- just like- naturally there's a little bit of a gap as far as talent and performance but mm-hmm. that is cam nori's second biggest win of his career his biggest his biggest yes. win ranking wise was against dominic team in Lyon, but rublev's number five in the world and right. I think that match played a little bit into the final because I think he really had to dig deep to get that second and third set. Rublev helped him out a little bit, but he definitely had to up his his game. And I think he, I don't know if he would say he had had anything left in the tank, but I'm pretty sure just from a, um, a standpoint of being proud of yourself and kind of being on that high, the the win against yeah. Rublev probably is one of the best of his season for sure. I would I would it say it is. I think I would say it's one of the best of his. I mean, at the tour level, I think it's the best win of his career. Even if you know team was ranked a little higher in Lyon, I just think the mental effort that he had to put in, mm-hmm. and you know the point in point out focus that he had to have to come back because he was. I mean, he he lost that first set. It, you know, and he, he got had, smoked. There was some. You know, <laughs> it's like it was, six it was, two. Yeah, it was six three. I mean, it wasn't even that. It wasn't really even that close. Nope. But. And then, you know, he's down break points, I believe, in the third game of the second set. And then he hits two aces. <laughs> and right from that moment, you know, I mean, you could just see that, like, he's in this match now and he's not going to give an inch. 
and Rublev's going to have to make it earn every single thing, and he's going to absorb all the pace. He's going to hit that nudgy backhand that he does, and he just <laughs> absorbs and blocks all of that backhand. It was extremely effective because he, he was he played it so smart. You know, he was forcing Rublev in, and Rublev is still not a great volleyer. And so he was having yeah, trouble. When you were, when you were talking about Rublev, I was like, the only thing I would add is that he kind of has bricks for hands. Just a, just a little yeah. bit of bricks for hands, but it's okay. He's working on it. He's playing more mixed doubles. He, he has a mixed doubles uh, yeah, gold I mean, medal to his name. I would name. say he's good, at, he's good when he, you know, he has a swing volley that he takes at the air mm-hmm. or when it's a, you know, it's a high approach that's set up by a big forehand. He, he's done a nice, nicer job and he's at least coming in more. And he knows he's aware of that uh, being a bit of a hole in his game. And actually, when he was asked about that in press, he definitely said that, yeah, I can improve a little bit in my defense. I can improve my slice a little bit. And I'm still very bad at volleying. And he just <laughs> flat out admitted that. And, and, you know, that's great because he has that awareness and he, he knows exactly, you know, that he's, well, he even said that I'm five in the world and there's so many areas I can improve in. Mm, wow. so from that standpoint, it's positive. It's just, you know, I guess I expected a little bit more from him in terms of, um, his body language because he got so negative yes and you know i'm like you know you're down a break in the second set but like this match is on your racket so you know him you know just he he behaved a little bit like a junior in that match and i was watching it courtside and actually that's what uh cam nori's um previous coach who was sitting next to me was or, or not coach but somebody just helping him out on the mental game and he was he was saying that you know rublev has just kind of lost the plot in terms of his mentality because and there was actually a point in the match where, you know, he went down a break in the third set and mm-hmm. he just started smashing the racket against the net post, mm-hmm. but he received no warning for it. <laughs> and so actually all of the people in the crowd near me were up in arms because they're like, that should be a warning. You know, that's the, that should be a code violation or at least, the you know, there was one fight. point, there was one point where he was taking off his wristbands. You know, how some, sometimes the players yeah. take their wristbands off the broadcast, like showed that. And I was like, is he about to retire? Cause he looked, he looked that uh, negative. He, he did. He did look that negative in that match. Um, he looked defeated. And there was a point in the match where he just started shouting out. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And yeah. just screaming. I think Cam Nori, he, you know, he could sense that on the other side of the net and, you know, but that plays right into Nori's hands. That plays exactly. that's that's the kind of that's the kind of frustration Cam Nori wants to typically provide his opponent, and that's what gets him his right. wins, and that's what's gotten him to a career high rank and had a season where he's been to five finals already. So I think Cam yeah. Nori is definitely going to remember the twenty twenty one season fondly and San Diego, maybe not as fondly as Casper Ruud, the champion. Um, just yeah. Casper Ruud to me. He's really been showing a lot of muscle that I didn't know he had, so to speak. And I mean that in in a really good way because he's been showing it physically that he can last and mentally he can kind of overcome hurdles or naysayers because for a guy that's never been to a final of a hardcore tournament, you definitely would have not known that. If you play, if you play the final back, you would have been like, "Oh, he's comfortable on hard courts," or at least his brand of tennis translates well to a hard court. But yeah. in reality, you and I know he's been a clay court two fifty monster all season and even beyond this season. So to see him kind of right. come good at a tournament in in North America on hard courts and kind of dominate the final the way he did, kudos to Casper Root for sure. Yeah, very impressive from him, you know, and especially. Um, you know, like you said, I mean, he's really becoming a more of an all-court player now. And I think that's great to see because, 
I mean, he does have a little bit of a clay court game where he stands really far back to return serve. And then he likes to get his return really, really deep so that he can hug that baseline and then kind of just work his way and make the rallies extremely physical. And that's where he's really improved so much as he's so physically fit, but he's also just extremely fast and he gets so many balls back and he puts the opponents in these really uncomfortable positions where he can hit, he hits the two shot pass really well. So if an opponent is, you know, not hitting a great approach, he'll make you pay because that's the Andy Murray special. <laughs> right. I mean the counterattacking, right? Because, yeah. but he does it in his own, you know, uh, topspin way because he's got great footwork. And so he can get around the ball quickly and he can make that ball dip really low at the, at the feet of whoever's at the net. And then he can just, you know, do a lot with the second passing shot. And he anticipates that play so, so well. And it's, it's, it's tough to see because you can see as the server that he's going, you know, five feet behind the baseline. So should I come in? Should I come in? You know, should I come in and, you know, knock off a <laughs> servant volley? But he knows that I'm going to come in. And so it just, it plays into the psyche a little bit. And that, that's where I saw sometimes um, the server kind of doubting themselves. And he was able to, you know, get a lot of returns back deep and just really make you play on your serve. And apart from that, he's really added, I, I hadn't realized what a great volleyer he is. You know, I mean, yeah. I know he is, I know he's definitely a, he's got good hands, but the way he was taking charge of, uh, you know, routine baseline rallies that normally on clay, I think he would have prolonged those rallies even more, but he was just stepping in and taking the initiative and just coming in and just using his touch. And he has such great hands at the net and feel that, that I think he realized, you know, I can actually, I can win points quickly on a hard court. Well, and, Patrick McEnroe said something's going to happen quickly for Casper Ruud. He went out there and said Casper Ruud's going to win Roland Garros by at least 2024. So <laughs> there's 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 yeah. people counting on him to to really come good. And I, I I really think he will, especially with the father that's been on the ATP tour before that did you know moderately well. I mean more than moderately. I think he just has a really nice team around him. It seems like he has a good head over his shoulders. He doesn't really get distracted by too much of the celebrity status, but I do think he could turn over. He could, if he were to go on a run of the, of his career, maybe at Australia or at um, definitely the French open, where it's probably more likely he's definitely can become a household name. I mean, his name, his first name is Casper. Like that's marketable right there. You know, <laughs> yeah, and and you know you're talking about mar- speaking of mar- marketability. I thought his game is, you know, he's obviously we know about the feud with Nick Kyrgios, right, on Twitter. And he's, all of that he stayed and, pretty. He stayed pretty above all of that stuff, which is nice to see. Kind well, of, he really had it, and it has, and he's kind of embraced it because mm-hmm. you know if you watched his matches this week, there was a you know he was doing some cheeky things. He did a tweener <laughs> in between. He did like a saber or a sneak attack move he he had a lot of flair in his game actually that you know i hadn't quite realized just because of what you know the what we kind of thought going in in terms of like okay he's kind of just gonna grind he's gonna hit with a lot of top spin clay court grinder kind of like typical and he he's showing that he's a he's no no pun intended he's casper's kind of sneaky good (laughs) because that was the that was the media narrative right and then you watch him play at labor cup and you watch the way he he beat riley opelka Mm-hmm. And you're like, actually, wow, this guy can be really good on this surface. And, you know, I'm actually predicting, I think his first major or first big title could come on a hard court. It could come at Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. I mean, not this year. I'm, I'm not predicting it for this year. But <laughs> You don't want to go too far and predict that for this year's Indian Wells? You don't want to do that? But, but I, I could definitely see him winning a hard court Masters in the next couple of years. You know, yeah. I, I think it's very possible. And he's already made a couple of quarterfinals this year. You know, he lost second round of 
uh, U.S. Open, but you know, Botich was on a great run, and he beat mm-hmm. Schwartzman, and he, he he's the only guy that took a set off of Medvedev. So, uh, so from that standpoint, I think he can be proud of his year and his achievements and five titles on the year, forty-seven wins. Uh, you know, winning about eighty percent of his matches and just consistency, and he's earned the respect of everybody in the locker room, and he's a well-deserved top ten player now. Yeah, and he could. He's probably going to qualify for Turin. So, which would, which would be nice to see because he was also a part of that 2019 class in Milan, the next right. gen. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So it's nice to see there's not that much of a of a gap as far as as far as next gen to now that some might think I, the next gen guys are, are are definitely coming for sure. And there was something cool that they that Cameron Cameron Nori and Casper had in common that I found before the before the final. The number was five. That's the thing they have in common. So. Cam Nori, that was his fifth final, fifth final. and that was also Casper Ruud's fifth title of the season. I thought that was really, yep. really interesting. It's kind of funny how you mentioned numbers and in tennis and me finding number five. It's it's all copacetic. It's all working. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the numerology is big in tennis. It's just sometimes just close. I like, I like, I like the small stuff that's like, oh, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's nice when it just works so evenly and you're just like, this is perfect. Is there anything that you wanted to, before we segue to Chicago, anything you wanted to touch on about San Diego that we haven't touched on yet? Um, yeah. So in terms of the, in terms of just the matches, I mean, I was, uh, uh, you know, I thought the second semifinal was terrific. The Casper Road against Grigor Dimitrov. Mm-hmm. For me, that was the, probably the match of the tournament. Um, just from all angles, uh, just being able to watch that match so close by and courtside. And seeing Grigor playing some of his best tennis again uh, in a long time, you know, because he struggled this year big with first uh, first semifinal of the season for him. So right, and injured at three of the four slams. So for mm. uh, from that point of view, I mean, he had a great week and he played he played exceptionally well. And he took that match, which was looking like it was going to be a straight sets with Kasparud up a set and a break, and you know, basically six four two one forty fifteen up. And I'm thinking, you know. We were already, we pretty much got our money's worth with the first semifinal. You know, it'd be right, nice right. if, you know, this could maybe prolong a little bit. And then he takes that second set, and the crowd is just so, it was just so electrifying to see him playing the right kind of brand of tennis confident again. Because I think he's such a, uh, such a treat for our sport when he's on and he's fit. And there's a lot of, you know, it's just, uh, it's baby is now 30 years baby old. Fed now. Time. <laughs> yeah, he's, exactly. And he's, you know, he's, approaching 30 and he's kind of in that lost generation and you know it's just nice to see the clash between the next gen and lost gen and matches like this 250s which could end up being you know really a confidence booster mm-hmm. for when you're not oh, playing man. you said you said lost gen i hate that they have i hate that they have yeah. that moniker. dang man <laughs> but, <laughs> well, i mean i mean, I mean what, can, yeah. what can you do what can you do when the when guys are taking 20 grand slams apiece i mean what, what, what yeah, can you really it's, do? It's a harsh uh, standard, I guess. But yeah, it, it it's tough because, you know, on the one hand, they were, you know, playing against the big three a lot of the time. And also you've got, you know, you've got this generation coming through and it, it just kind of feels like... Their window of are, opportunity is kind of closing of is, right, or closed. Yeah. <laughs> right. For some, it's closed. And really for most, it's closed by now. But it's... Yeah. But I mean, you know, if if Dimitrov sticks around long enough, I would not be surprised if he gets 
Um, this is this is kind of a bold <laughs> prediction. If he gets like a maiden Grand Slam final, if he sticks around and kind of finds his his form, I, I, don't, I don't. I mean, I don't see why he wouldn't have like a Marin Cilic type of resurgence in his career. You know, something something like that. Yeah, I mean, it it could happen, especially mm-hmm. you know if you know the like you said the big three, especially Roger and Rafa not being you know as healthy now and. And Medvedev's beating Djokovic every time they play. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. So I mean, I mean, it, you know, it can happen, and it's you know, their draws are going to be open, and there will, there will be still plenty of opportunities, and it's just simply just about putting yourself in those positions and getting your ranking up a little bit higher because you know definitely Nishikori is on the resurgence again, and mm-hmm. you know Dimitrov stays healthy. I mean, there's no reason why he can't be in the top twenty, you know, and just make a push again for the top ten. It's certainly doable, I would say. So. Hope is not lost yet for those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Hope is also not lost in Chicago because the WGA Tour returned to Chicago. So there's kind of a theme here this week. There's been some some returns to cities that once held really <laughs> established tournaments. And Chicago definitely was a stop in the early like 70s, 80s, and 90s for the WGA yeah. Tour. But for the past decade or so plus, it hasn't really been... Um, a stop on tour, but that all changed this week. And there was actually it changed more than just this week. It was this week was the WT 500 tournament in Chicago. That was kind of like the, is it Coupe de Gras? Is that the right phrase? Who knows? Like it was the big shebang that for lack of a better term, it was, it was the big shebang for the Chicago tennis festival. And it culminated with Garbine Muguruza lifting the trophy, uh, defeating Ange Jabor in a very, interestingly competitive maybe sometimes not final uh i say sometimes not because the final set was a bagel which you never you know unfortunately we got two bagels in our finals uh this week and in the finals of san diego and chicago but i mean both were competitive in their own rights maybe chicago a little bit more so um i definitely think similar to san diego there were some nice moments that just kind of felt like feel good moments watching the Chicago tournament, especially when it comes to fan interaction. Like even though Anz Jabor came just short of winning the championship and lifting the title there, the Tunisian fans, every time the, the camera would pan over there, you could like literally feel, and it was almost tangible, the excitement that they had to finally watch like, you know, Hans Jabor and Garbine Muguruza are solid top 20, top 25 players. Garbine Muguruza with the victory goes into the top six in the world. I think her ranking goes to number six. And Hans Jabor, who's won the most matches on tour at like 45 almost, something like that. Right. She's she's getting deep into every tournament she plays pretty much. Like this is top level women's tennis. And although a lot can be said about women's tennis being all over the place right now or not having really much dominance, it was number two seed, number six seed that played each other, and we got a good final out of it. So, what, what, yeah. are, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty positive um, week, you know, uh, for women's tennis. Definitely, um, there were some good matches, especially early on. It was nice mm-hmm. to see Kim Kleister's back. Ah, um, yeah, that was a, that return. was a good headline. Was, yeah, I remember that being a big story, especially in the first part of the week. Um, you know, and you know, played a nice competitive match against Su Wei Shea. Um, you know, always tricky, always tricky, Shea Shu Wei. Right. I remember. I remember first Basically, seeing her. Right. Yeah. I remember first seeing her in a match in 2008 against Justine Inna, and even Justine um, Inna struggled. Yeah. And that was like Justine Inna's like before she retired. She had like won 
<laughs> like everything she played up until that 2008 Australian Open. And I was like, oh, she's giving Justina some trouble. <laughs> yeah. And it was a, you know, on paper, if you just look at their games, it seemed, felt like that would be a good match for Kleistras if she was actually, you know, in some match with them. But mm-hmm. just the fact that she hadn't, obviously hasn't played in many, many months and coming back from injury, it was a, it was still a pretty good showing, I thought, and it was competitive. Um, and then, you know, there were some, it was a, it was a just a really good, like you said, a feel good story. I felt like uh, this was a, a bit of luck uh, that the doctor ordered for Garbina, because you know the way she started this year. I mean, definitely she was, feel like she, she should have been the in best the... players until yeah. about March, until about Charleston. I feel like yep. once she got injured in Charleston, things just kind of turned for the worse for her. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, all her confidence and all the swagger that she developed in the first three months of the season was kind of gone. And, uh, you know, she found her way in at Wimbledon. Sure, she made the third round, you know, a competitive match against Jabor there. Mm-hmm. She lost, but she never really felt like the same player to me, you know, since... She didn't really have... Uh, for a player that kind of, like, I, I was just looking at her stats. She doesn't really have that many small titles. All of her titles are yeah. huge, like Premier Mandatory or Grand Slams. And even in doubles, like, she's a she's a... Uh, for, I wouldn't say consistent, but she can be a big match player. She, can, she just yeah. she hasn't really had the best of luck in the Grand Slams. So I feel like right. for her to kind of with the season winding down, grab another trophy, especially at the five hundred level, it was it was nice to see. It was a little was, weird yeah. though. It was a little weird because she only she only played three matches to win the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> she played so, Ann Lee, uh, yeah, Ann Lee, seventy one, and then she played. Some other qualifier, Japanese qualifier. Mm-hmm. I called her Hannah Montana on Twitter, but that was just joking. <laughs> so I, just because I knew I'd forget her date, so I'm just like, okay. And I think that was not to. We'll, we'll, I'll have to find her name and give her her credit, and just do one of these days. But for lack of a better, for for lack of knowing her name, sorry, Hannah Montana. I think that was her first main draw of a WTA tour level tournament, like period. So she was def- she's definitely an up and coming. So Gar- the the right. draw gods definitely smiled on Garbine this week for sure, which was you know can't be mad at that. I mean you kind of you kind of create your own luck, and like you were saying at the beginning of the season, she was playing so well. She kind of you know mm, things could have gone one way or the other in that fourth round match yeah. with Osaka. We could be right, talking about big, uh... we, we could be talking about her as the French uh, as the Australian Open champion possibly. You know That's, so. Yeah. She had momentum, but it's just every time I see Muguruza play at a high level, I'm reminded of the level of tennis she played in 2014 when she beat Serena at Roland Garros. There's just a level inside of her that she can kind of reach. She doesn't always like, like, you know, roar back and reach it every single time. Sometimes when you kind of want her to, but when she does reach it, she kind of has a nice, um, healthy mix of consistency and sting in her shots she's not the most outright powerful player but she keeps good length on her shots and i feel like she was doing yeah. that when it really mattered uh, and it kind of and it, and it, bo- it bothered Anj jabor who likes to mix up things but she can't really mix things up if she's trying to hit drop shots six feet six feet behind the baseline because she's pinned back there you know yeah. so i mean i mean that's the whole thing with the the matchup the yin and yang of the contrast of style here because I mean, Muguruza, when she has a tempo from the baseline and when she's feeling it, I mean, just her side-to-side movement, just her relentless control from the baseline and her length, like you said, um, and just, you know, the 
the level that she can reach, you can kind of see it in her eyes when she's ready to return serve. Yep. It's just, yep. you can kind of feel like, okay, Garbinia, this is like, she's linked in. Garbinia. She's, she's, <laughs> she's locked in now. Yeah. It's, and when she's locked in, you know, then it's, it's pretty tough because the only way to throw her off is with variety, which Jabur does extremely well. But if you overplay it and you, um, you know, you start going for ambitious shots, which I feel like Jabur does a lot. Even mm-hmm. though she is extremely talented and she can pull them off better than any player I've ever seen in, on the WTA in recent times, mm-hmm. even though she's she has the talent and the ability to do that, it, she, it's very key for Jabor to pick her moments mm-hmm. to be to do that because she also has the ability to just inject a lot of pace on backhands and just crush forehands whenever she can. So it just you just never know what's coming, and with that, you know, you pay the price of a little bit of ups and downs and. Mm-hmm. Those ups and downs, if they come at the wrong time, like they did for Jabor when she was up 6-3 and 3-2, a breakup. Um, and, you know, I really felt like once Muguruza got that break, you know, it just, the sale kind of went out from Jabor. And especially physically also, you could tell she was struggling a lot more. You know? But, but I, I don't know if I could really sense it that it was that physical because I, I also think a lot of it was mental, you know? I think a lot of it was mental because there was something that I that I was seeing in the matches that I watched of hers all week. She looks in the best shape of her life. Like I know, yeah. I, I know there's been like memes or people going on Twitter about like how she kind of puked at Wimbledon. I'm so glad I didn't watch that live. So glad. So I when people re- people reference yeah. it, I'm like, I know what you're talking about, but I didn't see it myself. So <laughs> we're gonna ignore it. Yeah. She looks in great physical shape. I just think. Sometimes when you haven't been in the best of shape, and I'm speaking for somebody that isn't always in the best of shape, sometimes you can do like a bailout method. And I think her bailout method is kind of, and she has to work on this, is a little bit baked into her game, even though it looks like she can physically last more so than she could a couple of seasons ago. Sometimes that bailout method or just the, the like the you know, let's just trick them with a drop, a drop shot thing. It, it kind of litters up the stat sheet for her and she changes momentum quickly when if she kind of just were to put her head down and 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 play more workmanlike points, she probably would have been the, the champion instead of kind of um, su- either succumbing to the pressure mentally and doing some of those bailout shots. Because sometimes I would just kind of scratch my head like, j- j- like, Ans, why that shot? When yeah. you like, when, when, when some sometimes tennis is kind of weird like that when you hit a when you hit a shot that somebody didn't expect and it works you're like oh my god amazing shot but then when it doesn't work you're like what were you thinking she yeah. has to kind of find a happy medium of that somewhere in her game but i mean she's she's doing a, she's doing enough of that well enough to be leading the WTA tour with 40 something wins this year so you know yeah exactly and you know she can she does have a realistic chance now of qualifying for Guadalajara, even with this result. And, you know, I like to use the analogy a lot with players. I, I like to use it on the men's side, especially with one-handed backhands and players just with a lot of options. Mm-hmm. I always kind of feel like the, the issue is not the ingredients in their game. It's kind of like if you're baking a cake, right? Or you're making a smoothie. You have all the ingredients. You have the flour, you have the eggs, you have the milk, you have the sugar, you have the powder. You have everything kind of together. Mm-hmm. But without the oven, you know? Your game is, you know, the cake won't bake. Just like, you or if you don't know your measurements, or like, because baking is very much so measure. You, you got, you got me thinking now. That was a great analogy. <laughs> like, if okay. you put, if you put way too much flour 
into your cake. Like, even though if you have a recipe, if you're not really following the measurements, nobody's going to want to eat it or you're not going to get good results, especially with something as, as, as sensitive as making a cake and tennis can be very sensitive like that when it comes to the technicalities of people's games and executions of styles on the court, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I mean. And it's, it's also, I know that comes to fruition when it's a big moment and you're, Mm -hmm. you have to come up with, you know, big time tennis on a big time point. That's where, if you have those, you know, if you cycle those patterns that you've practiced over and over again in your, and they're kind of ingrained in your mind, you have that kind of like go-to one or two plays that you go to. And I feel like players like Jabor and players like who have a lot of options in their game, sometimes it's tough for them to just have a, a one-way game where they can kind of play in those moments, like kind of a meat and potatoes to your game, like just mm-hmm. that structure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, you, if Jabor has a little bit of that, even if it's just one or two plays, that she feels extremely confident in where if she has a short ball, instead of going for a drop shot, you know, maybe she hits a short angle or she goes, goes hard and deep and drives it and then comes and finishes it off at the net. Just keeping things simple. I feel like mm-hmm. in some of those moments would just pay off a little more for her than it is now because already it's paying off. So in terms of just adding a little bit more structure and a little bit more, um, I'm looking for a specific word, but I'm not able to quite. I like meat and potatoes. But yeah, you you, you get what I'm saying in terms of, you know, having that go-to option and that one singular option that you can always rely on with consistency under pressure. And I feel like that's a big thing that all the greats do is, you know, for them, it actually slows down in that moment Mm -hmm. where it it becomes it comes intuitive and you're not necessarily thinking if you build up the right kind of fortitude, you know, off either, either you do it and build it up in match play or you do it in practice play, but it, it can be built up. And like yeah. you said, the, the greats do have that. I think Anz Jabor is well on her way. I mean, there was a, so video, yeah. a video of her like sprinting on a, um, what do you call those things that are stationary? <laughs> oh, I, not a not a bike um oh, like station like the elliptical or wait, no it was she was running but i, I really okay. cannot think of the name treadmill yes there we go okay, okay good. <laughs> she was she was sprinting like heck on that treadmill and i was like this is a this seems like an Anj Jabour that is very focused she won her first wta title in eastbourne so she's kind of got that monkey off her back and it now seems like she's going for bigger and better Mm-hmm. thought she would have gotten that at this tournament not completely mad that Muguruza is the champion but I do think Anj Jabour is well on her way to really being in the mix into like the last weekends of Grand Slams because yeah. it's, it's, it's just not going to be I would not be shocked if I see Anj Jabour in a semifinal or a final of a Grand Slam if, if she keeps if she finds that happy balance that we're talking about she can bother a lot of players on any given day and I think she can I think the physicality of her game is rounding in the form to be able to do that seven times in a match or in a, in a tournament especially with days in between so we shall see if she can come good maybe this season or next season but I, I, for some reason I just kind of feel like the 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 butter is churning in a positive direction with Jabor and we're going to see something really magnificent happen, but it might not because I probably just, just <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it. And she's super committed and she's professional. And actually, even though her game is, it's got a lot of flair and it's got a lot of options and it's very fun style to watch. It's very, uh, 
she definitely has a process and she definitely has a, a good team around her. And, you know, that's key at this level. And what I like about her also is that she plays really well when she's down. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watched her, I think it was the, the quarterfinal against uh, Pegula. She lost the first set 6-1. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then she came back and just turned it around. And it was just, she plays so much better when she's down in the score, if you like, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes closing matches is a little bit of a struggle for her. But she just, she just got, she just, once she gets that really big win, like a big title, like even, even another 500 or, you know, a semifinal of a major or something like that, mm-hmm. I feel like the floodgates could open for her. And she's still got time. She's only 25, 26. And she plays, she plays with so much joy and she plays for the love of her country because she's trying to do things for the first time that ha- haven't been done in Arab history, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in terms of rankings and in terms of achievements. And so that always drives her. And then obviously she's, yeah, I, I think she's just, on her way and she's going to be a top 10 player she already is i would love to see it i honestly would love to see it just to kind of um talk about some other players because we've we've given jabor a lot of her flowers (laughs) which she's deserving of the semi-finalists although the semi-finalists in chicago didn't really have a you know wonderful endings the semi-finalist Garbinia Muguruza was set to play was Marketa Vondrusova. That didn't go well because Mar- Vondrusova did pull out at the last minute, so it was a walkover. And then Anj Jabor won the first set against Alina Rabakina, but Rabakina also was forced to retire in that second set. So I don't know if, if something was kind of in the, in the wind in Chicago, Windy City, no pun intended. Um, mm. But it was good to see, like, th- those are four... That's a that's a strong semifinalist lineup. Mugrutha versus Vondrusova, Jabor versus Rabakina. That's very like next gen, like what we've kind of been waiting on. And if 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 that's the final four of a major, I'm not mad at that, you know? So no. good week for all four. Hate that it had to kind of end that way, but good week for all four for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well said. I mean, they all had they've all had a great year, all those four players. So, you know, it feels kind of fitting that they were in the final four of this this event do you think do you think the people that made the final four because you know indian wells starts next week they're dropping the draws like probably the next that that did not sound good dropping the draws (laughs) (laughs) they're they're (laughs) releasing they're releasing the 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 draws for the tournament um in probably like a couple of hours after we finish recording this I think all the semifinalists, maybe even quarterfinalists and beyond in San Diego, in Chicago, have a fighting chance to go deep in Indian Wells. Because I, I think yeah. this, this time of the year, especially with, we, we, with who's not playing, and I'll probably get into that when I do a preview for Indian Wells, um, of who's not playing, who, like the timing of the tournament, I would not be surprised if we get a first-time Masters yeah. 1000 winner and a WTA 1000 winner in Indian Wells for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be wide open on the men's side. I mean, obviously, you know, Medvedev has got a big goal in front of him. He wants to finish the year number one. It is mathematically possible, especially in the race, even though he does have points to defend at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen videos of him training at UCLA, so he's pretty uh, gearing up, ready to go. And this is one tournament where he hasn't, you know, won before because it wasn't played in, you know, when he reached <laughs> his, the heights of his <laughs> career in the summer in 2019. Right. But but uh, apart from him, I mean, I could see a lot of chaos happening in the draw, honestly. Um, and On with, with Casper Rude, yeah. this confident, and uh, you know, especially the conditions there, pretty bouncy, slow mm-hmm. courts, but they travel fast through the air. And uh, I think Casper Rude would really like the conditions there, actually. And he's confident, and he's got the matches under his belt. He's got a title now. 
and he's going to be seated, you know, pretty high, like eighth. And mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, definitely he could have a he could have a letdown, and that would be understandable. But I think there are other players who could really thrive in those conditions, like even the big servers. Um, if you throw in like a Pelka and Isner in there, they could throw some chaos in there, and you could have, um, you know, first time finalists like you had in Miami with Hercatch and uh, Sinner. That was a great. I, I, I loved Miami. So hopefully, Indian Wells is like a continuation of Miami. Because for some reason, even though I loved the finals, the way that the the final the final weekend went in the women's side with the retirement in the men's final, I kind of wanted to go three sets. Hopefully, all of that momentum I felt at the end of my Miami is turned into Indian Wells, and we have a really great week and a half, two week tournament. Cause I think we are, and it's going to be interesting to see how they do the whole October to March turnaround that Roland Garros had to do last year. Cause <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are already plans in the work for, for Indian Wells, BNP Paribas open 2022. Like there just has to be logistically, you know? Yeah. I, I think it will always be in that March slot. Uh, yeah. Sunshine double forever. <laughs> yeah. But now if somebody can do the San Diego Indian Wells double, I guess. Hey, if her catch fun. wins again, you know, if her catch wins Indian Wells, I guess it would be the Sunshine Double, but just six months apart. <laughs> I wouldn't I would be mad at Casper Rue doing a, a a San Diego Indian Wells double, or maybe Mugruth to be in a Chicago Indian Wells double. Yeah. Hmm. And then and then obviously there's the interesting storyline of Raducanu and Fernandez. Yeah. And you know, how they kind of back up their first ever major final and what you hope would be a really good rivalry for years to come. Because I think women's tennis is in great hands, you know, in terms of its depth. And it feels like it. Yeah, it does it, feel it like it. It feels like the level is extremely high and we've got so much variety and just the names and you just feel like, you know, 10, 15 players can win any given tournament. But at the same time, it's, you know, it would be kind of nice to see some rivalries developing. And we, we've had that this year. Obviously, we've had Barty Sabalenka quite a few times. We've mm-hmm. had you know, like Jabor Mugurutha now a couple of times. We've had, you know, several, you know, Barty has played a bunch of people, you know, more than four or five times. So mm-hmm. we are kind of seeing it now. It's just kind of when they all come together for a combined event like this, I think that's where tennis is at its best, combined events. The WTA cake is baking. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, sure. I think that's a good a good spot for us to kind of wrap it up. Um, thank you for spending time on the show and chatting up with me. I definitely, definitely appreciate it. You've dropped a lot of gems. We've talked a lot about tennis. We've made it fun like I like I expected it to be. And yeah, is there anything that you wanted to leave the listeners with before we head on out of here? Um no, I think uh I think we've covered quite a lot and uh it was it was great having it was great coming on as a guest um like you said i love like i said it before i'll say it again i love uh, what you do miles so keep it up keep bringing the content every week um you definitely know <laughs> definitely know tennis extremely well and i can tell you're extremely passionate about it and that comes through so um i'm happy to do this again soon uh, it was a lot of fun super fun let the listeners know where they can actually find a lot of your content and you know give us your handles and stuff on socials yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at BunchV2K. Um, you know, I'm on there pretty much every day. I like to tweet things, uh, stats and uh, some analysis or whatever um, little nuggets I want to share. And then you can also follow um, the at Tennis and Beagles account. Yep, for run sure. by me, Andre Rollenberg and Owen Lewis. And so you can find that at Tennis and Beagles on Twitter. You can also find all of our podcasts and all the shows we've released 
um, on Spotify, Apple, and on Anchor as well. So yeah, pretty much that's what I have right now. And then you can also find um, uh, some of the articles I've written in my bio on Twitter because I have that in the I have in, that in the bio. So, but and all of your information will definitely be in the podcast description because I'm telling you guys, I'm telling your listeners at home or while you're on your jog or on your on your ride to or from work. Vanch is the real deal. <laughs> like a tennis, a tennis savant. And I, I really, I really hope to like look back on this episode years from now and see both of us doing great things in tennis because like y- your, your mind is moving in a way that I, I really appreciate. So again, thank you for doing this and that'll wrap us up. Alrighty, guys, that was another fun episode in the books. Again, huge thanks to Vonch from the Tennis and Bagels podcast for coming on through and giving us his first class experience at the San Diego Open Tournament and also his all around fantastic views about tennis. I really, really appreciated it. If you enjoyed what you heard in today's episode, please do check us out on all social networks at Missing Point Pod. Subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new episodes. Review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Spotify so you don't miss new episodes. And it also helps the show grow. Click on the podcast description so you can find out more about today's guest and also more information on how to support the podcast. Don't forget to send us your questions or feedback at missingpointpod at gmail.com. And until next time, very shortly, like I said, tune back in. You hear a lot of my voice this week. Indian Wells is a big tournament around the corner. Until next time, guys, have a good week. Take care and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.